This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I'd like to start out with a bit of good news on today's program, which is that earlier this week, yours truly and his assistant, in this case, Artie Ingram, our AI specialist, <laughs> went over to Stanford, where they were having a conversation titled, What Did Silicon Valley Do to Democracy and the Media? This was a conversation with Franklin Fowler, the author of World Without Mind, and Nate Persily, whose article, Can Democracy Survive the Internet, uh, got some attention recently. We spoke with Mr. Four briefly after his talk to invite him onto the program, and he agreed in principle. Now we just have to make the necessary arrangements with his book publisher. He was quite big on books. Probably the highlight of that evening was <laughs> him recounting the confident prediction made about the year, I don't know, 2002 or something, that by the year 2015, books, as we know them, would be gone. Upon relating that story, he or at least the moderator, then held up a copy of World Without Mine and said it appears that was wrong. Luckily, I finished the book about 10 minutes before that talk began and noted that at the end of it, and it's searching for solutions to the fix we find ourselves in, one of them was books, relying upon paper with ink on it, because that is not something that the Tech companies can monitor. They can't observe what you underline. They can't observe how long you dally on a certain page. They can't observe what you read and when you read it. To quote from Four, near his conclusion, if the tech companies hope to absorb the totality of human existence into their corporate fold, then reading on paper is one of the few slivers of life they can't fully integrate. The tech companies will consider this an engineering challenge waiting to be solved. Everyone else should take regular refuge in the sanctuary of paper. It is our respite from the ever-encroaching system, a haven we should self-consciously occupy. It does appear to us here at Radio Parallax that the subject of tech companies and what tech is doing to us is something we need to spend a lot of time on. In our second segment today, we will again quote from World Without Mind. I hope... Mr. Ford doesn't mind. <laughs> we, we will give him a chance to speak with you directly, we hope, in the months to come. I was also tickled to note the Ethics in Society series at Stanford, of which this lecture was a part, will be bringing before the public Mr. Tim Wu in February. That discussion is titled The Curse of Bigness Revisited. We plan to be there for that and hope to invite Tim Wu onto this program as well because as talked about some months ago, we were quite knocked out by his book, The Master Switch, subtitled The Rise and Fall of Information Empires, as well as his more recent effort, The Attention Merchants. This stuff does appear to be gaining traction. The current edition of Mother Jones has on its front page the article titled Rigged, How Trump Really Won, which is not something we're going to go into today, but it does talk about how tech got used and misused in the 2016 election. I am more interested in that magazine's article titled, You Will Lose Your Job to a Robot by Kevin Drum. <laughs> the subtitle of that was, And Sooner Than You Think. Anyway, we're going to defer that to segment two today. But um, walk around the periphery of this a bit in our first segment, starting with Harper's Magazine, the October 2017 issue. 
Uh, in addition to Harper's Index, where they provide us with numerous statistics from the real world, they, at the end of the magazine, have a piece called Finding, which is less statistical-based and more anecdotal. The piece I want to start with comes from the Finding section of Harper's, which noted that AI researchers predict that the last human job to be replaced by machines will be that of AI researcher, which we suspect might be true. But since we love this very sort of thing in this program, I want to quote from a few other items from the finding section, including the fact that Brooklyn puppy owners are foregoing vaccinations over fears of canine autism. And yeah, I'm just, I'm just reading the ink that's on the paper here. We confess we know absolutely nothing about the topic of canine autism, but we do plan to make inquiries. Another finding was that, and this is kind of a no-brainer, but it does note that people think of themselves as better than average because they think of average as below average. One finding which goes unchallenged, which I think probably should be challenged, but I was intrigued by, was that, quote, money can buy happiness if it's used to buy time, unquote. Maybe. How about this item? Modern Lebanese are 90% Canaanite. If you're not familiar with your Bible, the Canaanites were the people living in the Jordan Valley when the Israelites showed up, looked down, and went, hey, that's our land of milk and honey. The Hebrews referred to them as Canaanites. The Greeks had a different name, Phoenicians, same people. The Phoenicians, once they got kicked out of the Jordan Valley, went over to the coast and hung out where apparently they're still hanging out because that is today's Lebanon and the Canaanites evidently are still there. Kind of interesting. Mr. McMillan asked a question about Canaanite autism. That's, that's another subject we're apparently going to have to research. I don't know how we're stumbling into Harper's here, but, you know, we're here, so let's just go with it. Harper's Index has a couple stats which, well, frankly, Radio Parallax just cannot resist, such as the value of military equipment that the Pentagon gave to a fictitious law enforcement agency created by the General Accounting Office, $1.2 million. How about this one? The percentage of judges working in New York State who do not, do not have a law degree, 38. No, we can't explain it. And one we really definitely can't explain, and we may have to ask you to help us with, dear listener, by dropping us a line at Info Radio Parallax, is this statistic, which is that the estimated portion of U.S. weddings at which the chicken dance is banned is one out of four. If you know anything about the chicken dance or how it gets banned at weddings, drop us a line. And, uh, you know, because here at Radio Parallax, we, free, we feel free to stumble into topics on a whim. Why don't we stumble into the current edition of Astronomy Magazine in the article by Bob Berman. We spoke to Mr. Berman some years back on this program, and we recommend that if you didn't hear it the first time, check it out at our archives at radioparallax.com. Mr. Berman spoke with us about his book, The Sun's Heartbeat, which was quite fun. The piece he wrote in Astronomy Magazine was titled Love Affair with a Saros. And I feel like talking about it. A Saros is a term for a particular alignment of moon and sun that produces a solar eclipse that evolves through time. They all evolve through time. But as you might imagine, some are better than others. Some eclipses last six minutes or more. Some eclipses may only last, at their very best, a couple of minutes. Kind of hard to explain without pictures. But suffice it to say that a given Saros will repeat every 18 years, as all eclipses do. And if you start out with a really favorable alignment, 
during the middle of the run, you get some pretty cool eclipses. Saros 136 happens to be one of the all-timers. And Mr. Berman points out that it actually is of historical interest because it was the same Saros, number 136, that back in 1919 gave an especially favorable eclipse of 6 minutes and 51 seconds, which Arthur Eddington used to test Einstein's theory of relativity. Yours truly caught Saros 136's last appearance in the 20th century from Cabo San Lucas, Mexico, where it lasted nearly seven minutes. I was rather disappointed to find out that no eclipse during the entirety of the 21st century will last as long. And of those that do last longer than average, it looks like Saros 136 is the star yet again. By the way, it peaked out uh, several uh, appearances ago in terms of length of duration. Each one of its subsequent appearances will be a bit shorter in time for a number of reasons. But we do note that in April, April 8th to be exact, in the year 2024, Saros 136 hits the United States. It will not be as good as the 1991 appearance, which was 6 minutes and 40 seconds. It'll be under 5 minutes, but nevertheless, it's twice what we saw in Oregon and across the United States this past summer, so you should mark your calendar now. Don't miss this one. I also want to take just a minute, I think, to quote from the December issue of Discover, which has an article titled, Separated at Birth, which talks about the fact that despite their large differences, the asteroid series and the Kuiper Belt object slash former planet Pluto might actually be long-lost twins. It's an interesting piece, which we recommend you check out on your own, dear listener, because frankly, we just don't have time for it on today's program. But the article that followed it, we won't want to spend a minute on. It was titled The Next Horizon and talks about how 4 billion miles, yes, 4 billion miles from planet Earth, there is another Kuiper Belt object, quite small. In fact, it's about the size of Manhattan. But scientists are excited about the fact that the New Horizons spacecraft is going to pay it a visit on New Year's Eve of next year, 2018. They believe this object has been sitting out there orbiting the sun since since the formation of the solar system, so scientists are very excited to get a look at this object because they believe it has been unaltered over the eons. One thing that really intrigued me was that how good these guys are at plotting out orbits and whether uh, an object, even an object that far away that's that small is going to pass in front of a star. Calculations showed that it would. And scientists were very keen to get a look at that occultation event because it tells you a lot about whether there's, say, debris around it. They, they recently discovered another such object that did apparently have a ring. Had they found a ring about this one, they might have had to adjust the trajectory a bit to keep it safer. But last July 17th, they did all the math uh, well enough to, to actually catch an event of an occultation. Now, the name, if you want to call it that, for this object which is going to be visited is 2014MU69, which we have to admit is not very catchy. NASA has suggested that the public get together to name it. Some have cautioned that this may not be the best idea in the wake of the previous efforts to name a research vessel visiting the Antarctic by the public, which, which did result in it being named Bodie McBoatface. We pray to God this will not repeat itself on 2014 MU69. 
All right, now we're going to bash uh, tech companies, which, by God, we plan to do today. Let's just throw this item out from the current edition of The Week magazine. The Week reports that the New York Times, specifically Jesse Drucker and Simon Bowers, took a look at what Apple's been up to and found that they have a new tax shelter on the tiny island of Jersey in the English Channel. Previously, Apple had worked out a sweet deal with Ireland to create a largely tax-free environment for them. So when Ireland asked them to pay some taxes, they moved to Jersey. They moved $128 billion in offshore cash to this tiny little island in the English Channel. We know about this because of revelations in a cache of secret corporate records leaked last week, which has been dubbed the Paradise Papers. These documents are believed to have come from a Bermuda law firm catering to businesses and the wealthy elite. And how about this? Apparently online retailers have a problem. Free shipping has become a burden for them. Nearly a third of all web orders are returned. This compares to just 9% of purchases made at brick and mortar stores. Processing and reshipping all those returned items can eat up 20 to 65% of an e-retailer's costs of goods sold, according to Bloomberg.com. And how about this irresistible item? According to the Palm Beach Post, President Trump's Mar-a-Lago Resort has obtained permission from the U.S. Labor Department to hire 70 foreign workers to serve as cooks, waiters, and housekeepers this winter. To satisfy federal rules, Mar-a-Lago first advertised the jobs in a local newspaper. They put a tiny ad in a local newspaper. It didn't give phone numbers or an email address. It asked people to apply by fax. Now, we can't really see the responses, but we would ask you, dear listener, how many of you would be prepared to respond by fax? Yeah, that's what we thought. And speaking of Donald Trump, although we've been making a conscious effort to try and avoid that of late, we cannot resist <laughs> the report that the president, examining his response to the disaster in Puerto Rico, rated it. He gave himself a 10. It should be noted that at this point in time, more than 80% of households in Puerto Rico remain without electricity. Asked when the 3.4 million U.S. citizens living there could expect power to be fully restored, Trump replied, it's a very, very good question, actually. Let us pause a minute to acknowledge the remarkable fact that Donald J. Trump is the President of the United States. And we're going to leave off the issue of the Russian investigation, I think, out of today's program to see what's breaking. It's, it is, things are happening there, but uh, it's premature probably to talk about them. Let's instead talk about the White House Chief of Staff, John Kelly. Writing in nymagazine.com, Ed Kilgore noted that it's time to abandon the notion that the White House Chief of Staff is the, quote, wise, sane, gray head, unquote, restraining President Trump's, quote, ignorance and malice, unquote. Mr. Kilgore notes that the retired Marine General last week echoed his boss's backward views on the Civil War, claiming that the conflict was the result of a lack of compromise between the two sides implying that if the North had not been so darn negative about slavery, secession and war could have been avoided. The Atlantic.com sounded off on this, noting that Kelly's rosy view of Robert E. Lee and the Confederacy is a classic example of the lost cause myth. The revisionist lied that Confederates were nobly fighting for states' rights against a Northern aggressor. The ugly reality is that the South fought 
for the monstrous freedom to own black people as property and to beat, rape, and sell them. Which is the truth, eh? Let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for self-reinvention with the news that Sean Combs announced he's added Brother Love to his list of alter egos, which had previously included Diddy, P. Diddy, Puffy, and Puff Daddy. The hip-hop impresario commented, I am not just who I am before, I'm something different. And for those of you offended by the fact that we're even reporting something so stupid... Well, we apologize. We're just using it for comedy relief. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for, I guess you'd call it, technologic solutions, with the news that a private school in Miami is offering parents a $120 bulletproof plate to fit inside their child's backpack. The flexible kit panel can stop most handgun bullets and weighs only a pound, according to the chief of security, George Guala, of Florida Christian School. He said, I'd rather be prepared for the worst than be stuck after saying, wow, I wish we'd have done that. He explained, we want to protect our students' center mass. You know, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Many years ago, we did a bit on this program where someone came on to talk about how they were selling bulletproof backpacks for schools in the wake of a tragic shooting. And it appears now that reality is caught up. This will be not the last time we talk about that today. But anyway... We would note that it was an ugly week last week for the jury system in the wake of the fact that a juror in the corruption trial of Senator Robert Menendez, Democrat of New Jersey, sent a note to the judge asking, what is a senator? The judge declined to answer, instructing jurors to rely on their, quote, individual and collective memories, unquote, whatever that means. And no, we don't know whether that judge actually has a law degree. But we do know that the jury system is a pretty dumb way to render verdicts. Now, uh, we were railing earlier about the fact that, uh, you know, if you want to fight back against tech industries, books might be one way to do it. Yours truly stumbled into a Barnes & Noble last week and got to again experience the joy of meandering through a bunch of books that were not carefully pre-chosen for me because of my previous purchases, such as what happens when you're on Amazon. Amazon, by the way, reportedly makes one-third of its sales of books from those suggestions because they know what you like. One thing I like to do is go to the bargain section of bookstores, and doggone it, when I did so, I picked up a bargain book titled Incredible Elements. I was won over after flipping it open to page 32 and discovering something which I find curious. Oh, this book is subtitled Totally Non-Scary Guide to Chemistry and Why It Matters. We have, on many occasions, uh, looked into questions of uh, hidden data. Some of them might come under the headings of conspiracies, some not. We have an insatiable desire in this program to dig out facts, especially facts that are being hidden. One of our regular correspondents said to me uh, about a year ago that... um, conspiracies in his mind were generally discovered and he didn't think too much of this idea that a lot of data was out there successfully 
hidden from the public that wants to know. And a rather startling example of why that not might not be true, we have the question of Greek fire, which I want to spend a minute or two on. To quote from Incredible Elements, Greek fire was a napalm-like incendiary substance used in defense of the Byzantine Empire, which is the Greek-speaking eastern part of the Roman Empire. The technology of Greek fire was a closely guarded secret known only to the imperial family and associates, and it remains an enigma to this day. It was first used in 678 of the Common Era against the Arabs who were threatening to overrun Constantinople, having already conquered the Persians. But, notes the book, the Arabs had sown the seeds of their own defeat. When their armies overran Christian Syria, refugees flocked to the safety of Constantinople, and among them was a Syrian Greek called Kalanikos, who brought with him the recipe for the secret weapon that would become known as Greek fire. The book notes that incendiary weapons based on petroleum products such as pitch or naphtha, a flammable oil, were part of the Arab arsenal. In fact, they were probably known in one form or another to the Romans and Persians before them. What distinguished the new Greek fire was its advanced composition and, crucially, the apparatus used to spray the flaming liquid toward the enemy. Evidently, to spray this liquid death, the Byzantines invented an ingenious siphon device. And it worked! The effects of Greek fire were devastating in 678 AD. It shattered the Arabs' navy and killed thousands of men. The blockade of Constantinople was broken, and the Arabs were forced to appeal for peace. When they attacked again in 717 AD, Greek fire once again played a key role. In fact, over the next 300 years, Greek fire was vital in the defense of the Byzantine Empire. But, notes the book, by the year 1204, the secret had somehow been lost. Incendiary weapons were still used, but the technology that made Greek fire so formidable was no longer available. Yes, the siphon device that was so effective in protecting the capital, well, the technology somehow got lost to follow up, and it remains lost to this very day. We would have to label this an extremely successful conspiracy. To this day, this mystery has not been unraveled, and we believe that if that is the case with Greek fire, it is probably the case with quite a few other things we might cite. All right, where were we? Uh, let's go to New Scientist magazine. There was a... <laughs> It was an analysis of killer robots in the current issue, which, frankly, I find too depressing to delve into at length. It was titled Lethal Logic, but I did love the subheadline, which was that armed machines sound scary, but if driverless cars can save lives, but if driverless cars can save lives, so can robots with guns. To which I would just have to say, well, maybe, maybe. From the uh, mostly good news file, we have this stat also from New Scientist, that the ozone hole above Antarctica has shrunk. Unstable clouds and warmer-than-average temperatures in the stratosphere helped reduce its size by 4 million square kilometers this past year, which sounds great. The hole is now noted to be at its smallest size since 1988, but... It still covers 19 million square kilometers, which is nearly twice the size of Europe. But, you know, making progress, uh, I hope. All right, we're still a new scientist, but we're going to have to take the plunge back into tech and the problems with tech. There's a piece in this magazine titled, My Week-Long Digital Data Detox. And I just, let's quote from this piece by Timothy Ravel, who apparently writes about tech. 
He says, even as a technology journalist, it's not hard to switch off when someone starts preaching about personal data. I know. We're telling our deepest secrets to mega corporations for free, and they are using our innermost desires to sell ads. But for most of us, much of the time, it is out of sight, out of mind. He then goes on to say, yet it shouldn't be. We should at least be on the ball about who we give data to. So, to force myself to confront this head-on, I, la- I spent the last week doing a digital cleanse. He notes that he grabbed a data detox kit produced by the Tactical Technology Collective in Berlin and the Mozilla Foundation. Actually, I don't fully understand this article. I need to have uh, some help from our uh, tech department. I am intrigued by the fact that there are ways to fight back. Apparently, this allows you to go through every page you've ever liked on Facebook and unlike it, which is curious. Considering when we talked about Cambridge Analytics some months ago in this program, we, and we hope you too, dear listener, were shocked by the degree which which they can suss out our personalities, what we like, etc., based on nothing more than what you like on Facebook. I think I'll segue from this into the special issue of New Scientist dedicated to technology. Titled Essential Knowledge, Chapter 5 delves into how we might be slaves to the algorithm. Piece by Hal Hodson notes that automated systems are running the show often in secret. The piece notes that algorithms are simply sets of instructions for getting something done. The trouble is that algorithms get nestled inside or bolted to others, interacting in ever more complex ways. It can be hard to predict how algorithms will behave with real-world data once they are released into the wild. One key to all of this is how search results are impacted by previous choices in searching. This piece notes that Researchers are trying to understand how location, for example, might influence your search results. To do that, they've been simulating hundreds of Android phones and spreading them across Ohio using faked GPS coordinates. They've also been looking to see whether people from rich and poor neighborhoods get different search results. Evidently, the piece notes that evidence of that may already have come to light. Some... Some think that hidden algorithms played a part in the 2008 subprime mortgage crash. Between the years 2000 and 2007, U.S. lenders like Countrywide Home Loans and Deep Green doled out home loans at an unprecedented rate via automated online applications. They quote Dan Power at the University of Northern Iowa saying, everyone was saying what a great innovation it was. Everyone was very high on these fast web-based loans. Nobody anticipated a problem. We've talked about the crash of 2008 before, um, but we're unaware of the possible uh, contribution made to it by automated loans online. We're, we're quite certain there was a lot more to that, uh, that crash than that problem, but you know, it's interesting to note it. And we might speculate at this point on, on why it is when you're online, you're always being asked what your location is. They're very concerned about where you are. And his talk over at Stanford, Franklin Foer noted that we do have a bit of a problem in assessing the validity of information. When it comes to you on the web, it's not like, say, when you're in the checkout line and you look over and see a news story which is coming to you from the National Enquirer. When that happens in the real world, you may think, yeah, right. Well, I would think that when you're online, you should also say, yeah, right, quite often, but apparently people do less regularly. The other speaker at that event, Nat Persley, who wrote the article, Can Democracy 
survive the internet, noted that because everything is packaged the same when you when it arrives in your desktop, um, you just may have a harder time distinguishing it. Let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We've got plenty more to talk about. <laughs> 